Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the exclusive remedy provisions of workers' compensation law does not bar a $900,000 award against an employer for discrimination. Here's what happened in the case of Pena versus Central Freight Lines. In April 2004, plaintiff Louise Pena was hired by defendant Central Freight Lines as a customer service representative at its Hayward, California terminal. In 2008, Pena was injured in an automobile accident on her way to work. Later that day, she notified her employer that she had hurt her back and neck and was in pain. She was asked to keep Central informed as to her medical condition and when she would be returning to work, which she did on several occasions. The trial court concluded that because of her reports, the employer knew or should have known that she had a serious health condition that entitled her to medical disability leave under the California Family Rights Act and a reasonable accommodation under the Fair Employment and Housing Act. Instead, her boss recommended that she be terminated because of dissatisfaction with her attendance during her protected leave dates. The employer's notice of separation said absenteeism was the reason for termination. No other category on the form was marked. Pena attempted to return to work without any limitations or restrictions and was able to perform all the essential functions of her job. She brought with her written medical certifications clearing her to work, but the employer suspended her and sent her home and told her to call in every day to determine whether there was work for her. She was not offered any work. She then sued Central for discrimination under the Fair Housing and Employment Act and in a non-jury trial prevailed on all of her causes of action. The trial court found that there was plenty of work to do in the customer service department at the time. The court awarded Pena $470,000 in economic and non-economic damages and nearly $432,000 in attorney fees. The award was affirmed by the Court of Appeals in the unpublished case of Pena versus Central Freight Lines. Central claimed on appeal that emotional distress damages arising from job loss are barred by the exclusive remedy provisions of workers' compensation law. The court ruled that this argument was correct as a general matter, but wrong in this particular case. Emotional distress caused by misconduct in employment relations involving, for example, promotions, demotions, criticism of work practices, negotiations as to grievances as a normal part of the employment environment. A cause of action for such a claim is barred by the exclusive remedy provisions of the workers' comp law. However, the legislature did not intend that an employer be allowed to raise the exclusive remedy rule for the purposes of deflecting a claim of discriminatory practices. Thus, a claim for emotional and psychological damage arising out of employment is not barred where the distress is engendered by an employer's illegal discriminatory practices. The Court of Appeal annulled a serious and willful misconduct award against an employer in the case of Morga versus CLP Resources. Jorge Morga was working as a carpenter in 2009 when he was directed to use a table saw which was unsecured to a base and lacked a protective guard. 
He stepped on debris, lost his balance, and placed his hand on the unguarded table saw blade and sustained serious cuts to his left hand. Mora filed an application for a serious and willful misconduct award under Labor Code Section 4553. He alleged the injury was due to the willful failure of the employer to provide a safe place to work and that the employer had a knowingly violation of a safety order. Mora acknowledged he had not told anyone at the CLP specifically about the unsecured, unguarded table saw, although he said it was one of the safety problems he intended to discuss with his supervisor. On the other hand, a company safety official said CLP had inspected the job site about two months prior to Mora's injury and found no safety violations. If the unguarded table saw was present, it was not located by the inspector, although it had been mentioned by the individuals who previously worked on the job site. The employee speculated the inspector might have missed the table saw because the employer removed his tools from the site each day to prevent theft. CLP was cited by Cal OSHA for having an inadequate injury and illness prevention program and for the hazardous state of the table saw. Cal OSHA ultimately reduced the proposed penalty against CLP, possibly after concluding that CLP was unaware of the hazardous nature of the saw. The work comp judge found that Mora's injury was proximately caused by the willful and serious misconduct of CLP and awarded appropriate SW damages. The work comp judge explained that the use of an unguarded table saw was an inherently dangerous proposition likely to cause serious injury. At the same time, the work comp judge said she found no clear evidence that management representatives at CLP knowingly violated the safety order and no evidence that its managing representatives ignored the dangerous situation. Reconsideration of the SNW award was denied, but the Court of Appeal annulled the award in the unpublished case of CLP Resources versus WCAB Mora. The mere failure to perform a statutory duty is not alone willful misconduct. It amounts only to simple negligence. To constitute willful misconduct, there must be actual knowledge or the equivalent of actual knowledge coupled with a conscious failure to act. The court concluded that the inadequate inspection cited by the judge and the appeals board as misconduct could not have constituted the type of intentional conduct required for liability under Labor Code Section 4553. The Court of Appeal ruled that the owner of rental property is an employer of his friend that was hired to paint the eaves. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Bussard versus Ings. Lloyd Ings was a retired telephone worker living in Simi Valley. He owns two triplexes in West Los Angeles to supplement his retirement income. Matthias Bussard, the injured worker, was Ings' former neighbor and friend. Bussard lost his job as a mortgage broker with Wells Fargo Bank in 2009. Ings therefore agreed to pay Bussard $20 per hour to paint the eaves on one of his rental triplexes. On the first day of painting, Bassard walked backwards off the roof and sustained injuries. Bassard acknowledged there was nothing defective about the roof. He simply misjudged the size of it. Ings paid Bassard's medical bills for a short period of time, but stopped when it became too expensive. Bassard then filed a lawsuit against Ings, claiming in part 
the uninsured employer liability under Labor Code Section 3706. The trial court ruled that Bussard was not an employee of Mr. Ings for purposes of workers' compensation, and so Ings had no duty to purchase such insurance and no liability under Labor Code Section 3706. The court also ruled that Bussard was not an employee for purposes of Cal OSHA, and so Ings had no duty to comply with Cal OSHA requirements. Because it was undisputed that the fall was not due to any defect in the roof, the court ruled Ings has no liability for negligence. Thus, the court granted Ings' motion for summary judgment. The Court of Appeal, however, reversed in the unpublished case of Bussard v. Ings. Labor Code Section 2750.5 establishes a rebuttable presumption that a worker performing services for which a contractor's license is required is an employee rather than an independent contractor for purposes of workers' compensation. A person is an employee for purposes of Cal OSHA if he is directed by an employer to engage in any employment. Employment includes the carrying on of any trade, enterprise, project, industry, business, occupation, or work except household domestic services. Ing's income-producing triplexes are not the equivalent of a private home. He does not live in either triplex, and they are not located on the premises or grounds of his home. The above regulations suggest that Bussard's maintenance work on Ing's rental property is not domestic household service. The Court of Appeal therefore reversed the summary judgment in favor of the employer and remanded the case for further proceedings. Class action lawsuits in federal courts on both coasts have been initiated on behalf of small businesses in California, New York, and New Jersey against American International Group over workers' compensation reporting. The suit alleges unfair business practices, fraud, and violations of the federal racketeering statutes. Plaintiffs allege that AIG misreported the amount of workers' comp premium it collected in each state, which resulted in insured employers paying more in workers' comp fees. Plaintiff attorneys say the case could involve thousands of firms doing business from the 1970s into the early 2000s and could result in damages of hundreds of millions of dollars. AIG says the suits are an attempt to reopen charges that have already been settled. In 2010, AIG agreed to pay $146.5 million in fines and additional taxes to state insurance regulators for alleged underreporting of premiums to states more than a decade ago. AIG has also agreed to pay $450 million to resolve litigation brought by other insurance carriers over the misreporting. The deal is believed to have resolved a multi-state probe that examined whether AIG violated premium reporting rules. In response to this week's suit, AIG referred to that deal and said that AIG will defend the new cases vigorously. But Drew Pomerantz, <clears throat> a partner with the firm representing the class in California, said that AIG has not compensated any insured employers affected by this conduct. Pomerantz estimates AIG underreported premiums by $2 billion. This could be tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. The first court of appearance in California is set for January 17th in the U.S. District Court in San Francisco. Similar appearances are expected in New York and New Jersey. 
Knowing what is or is not a good subrogation case takes time and years of experience. The negligence, reasonable man standard has clear extremes and a gray area in the center that makes a determination of what conduct is below the standard sometimes difficult. A new case from the California Court of Appeal shows what ended up to be not such a good case for the injured worker. Plaintiff James Keith filed an action against the city of Pleasant Hill and Kelly M. Geis, a police officer employed by the city. He claimed damages for injuries he suffered at his job when he was struck by a water pump attached to a hose that became entangled with the underside of Geis's squad car. Keith was working for the Contra Costa Water District at the time, performing repairs in the street in Pleasant Hill. The construction area was set up with orange traffic cones directing eastbound traffic on into the right-hand or number two lane. Keith was working in the number one lane where a hole had been dug to fix a leaking pipe. The district workers placed a flexible hose attached to a water pump across the active lane of traffic. Kelly Grease, a Pleasant Hill police officer, was driving a patrol car on a non-emergency assignment to back up a fellow officer. Geis slowed as she entered the construction area and passed over the hose at under 25 miles an hour, the posted speed limit. Traffic had been passing over this hose for several hours earlier that day, with some vehicles traveling faster than Geis and some traveling slower. The hose became entangled in the undercarriage of her squad car and pulled the water pump out of the excavation hole. The pump struck Keith's leg, causing multiple serious fractures, and sent him into the air, causing him to fall on and injure his head and shoulder. Defendants filed a motion for summary judgment. In opposition, Keith offered the opinion of an expert in accident reconstruction and analysis who concluded that Geese's speed had caused the pressurized hose to jump higher than other motorists who had traveled at slower speeds over the hose, which allowed the hose to catch or entangle on the undercarriage of her vehicle. The trial court granted summary judgment in favor of the city and the police officer. The summary judgment was affirmed in favor of the defendants in the unpublished case of Keith versus City of Pleasant Hill. The court concluded that it is not reasonable to require a driver of a vehicle to foresee that driving at or below the posted speed limit over a hose that has been deliberately extended over the road and which the driver has no choice but to drive over will become entangled in the undercarriage of his or her vehicle. Indeed, it is difficult to perceive how a driver could avoid potential liability in this case, given that hundreds of vehicles of all sizes had driven over the hose prior to uh, Officer Geese, some at different speeds and all without incident. The outcome of this case is not surprising, and the opinion is based upon simple common sense. Often it is just common sense that helps a claims administrator determine what is or is not a good case for subrogation. Keith's claim is a good example of a case that would not justify a subrogation effort. And now our fraud report. The former owner of a Los Angeles medical clinic management company has been indicted for his role in a $13 million scheme to defraud Medicare. 36-year-old Mikron Mike McGurian of Glendale, California was indicted on one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud 
and five counts of health care fraud, each of which carries a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. Court documents allege that McGurian owned MedServe Management, a medical clinic management company located in Van Nuys. McGurian allegedly oversaw several medical clinics that generated prescriptions and other medical documents for medically unnecessary power wheelchairs and other durable medical equipment. He and his co-conspirators allegedly sold the prescriptions to DME supply companies knowing that the prescriptions were fraudulent. The DME supply companies then submitted false and fraudulent claims to Medicare, generating approximately $13.6 million in fraudulent claims. Medicare paid approximately $7.6 million on those claims. And in regulatory news, Governor Jerry Brown has signed into law a bill that will prevent many professional athletes from filing workers' compensation claims in California. The bill, AB 1309, applies to athletes who played for teams outside of California or had limited experience playing on California teams. Those professional athletes will no longer be allowed to make claims for cumulative trauma, including dementia claims allegedly caused by head injuries. In recent years, thousands of athletes who played for teams elsewhere in the country have filed such claims in California because its workers' compensation system unlike many others, recognizes cumulative trauma cases. In addition, the state's statute of limitations has a provision allowing some workers to file years or even decades after retirement. Backers of the bill, including the National Football League, Major League Baseball, and the other major sports leagues. Opponents, among them, were the players' unions and organized labor, argued that it unfairly excludes one class of workers from the state system. The new law applies only to football, baseball, basketball, ice hockey, and professional soccer players. The new law is effective as of September 15th, limiting any claims filed after that date by out-of-state athletes. AB 1309 passed overwhelmingly in both houses of the state legislature, garnering only five no votes in its final version. This new law follows news last month that the NFL had reached a tentative $765 million settlement with more than 4,500 former players who had sued the league over allegations that it did not properly warn them about the risks associated with concussions. SB 863 includes a program to provide supplemental payments for injured workers whose permanent disability benefits are disproportionately low in comparison to their earnings loss. This program is to be funded by a $120 million per year employer surcharge and paid by the DIR staff. However, the language in the statute does not expressly define what is disproportionately low. The bill provided that the director of the DIR had wide leeway in the design and implementation of this new program. The bill required the director, in consultation with the California Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation, to determine eligibility and the amount of payments to be made based upon a study. And now the commission has released its working paper, which was prepared in part by the RAND Institute. The director's office will be using RAND's findings in the development of the Return to Work program. The due benefit is called the Special Earnings Loss Supplement, or SELP. The RAND study discussed the issues 
of the period over which to observe the post-injury lost experience of an injured worker under this program. The study claims that a person's actual losses can only be measured after they have been realized. This implies passage of a sufficient period of time after the date of injury to allow for the effects of the injury to be realized. Past RAND studies suggest it takes three to five years after the date of an injury for earnings losses to stabilize. The report suggests that an eligibility determination would likely need to focus on earnings that occur several years after the date of the injury. The California Applicants Attorneys Association has voiced its objection to such a delay in making the SELS payment. The Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation has also released another report on formulating copy service fee schedules. Senate Bill SB 863 requires the Administrative Director of the Division of Workers' Compensation in consultation with the Commission to adopt a copy services fee schedule. The Commission spoke to a number of different stakeholders involved in the procuring, preparation, and payment of copying and related services. It became clear almost immediately that the system was riddled with distrust and that it had essentially broken down with each side feeling justified in its approach to pricing. Applicant copy services accused payers of unreasonable delay or refusal, and they billed the cost of collections and bad debts into their fees. Payers accused the applicant copy services of puffing the bills, and they reject the bills or offer only discounted payments. The report says that it is essential to break this vicious cycle of inefficiency which is why it is proposing a lump sum payment system. The report recommends a flat fee schedule to cover all costs related to obtaining and reproducing a set of records up to 1,000 pages if the bill is paid timely and without dispute, and a higher fee to include the additional business expenses if the bill has to go into collection or dispute resolution. It also concluded that the major costs are providing document copies where the costs of retrieving the documents rather than the actual per-page copy costs. This is the reason why a lump sum payment proposal disregards the number of pages in a copy set. The cost of each additional copy set should be $130.55. Additional copy sets should be made available at $0.10 cents per page if in paper and for a nominal sum of $5 if electronic. The advantage of a flat fee rate is to simplify the process as well as to reduce the number of areas of potential disagreement between applicant, copy services, and payers. In order to prevent abuses of the new system, Cheswick recommended requiring that each subpoena be supported by the declaration of the attorney seeking documents, that the subpoena was issued in good faith, is not duplicative, and seeks documents necessary to pursue the applicant's claim. The report recommended requiring the use of a registered service to qualify for payment. Registered copiers cannot be convicted of felons, must have a notary public involved in the management, must be bonded, must carry an identification card issued by the county clerk, and are statutorily responsible for maintaining the integrity and confidentiality of information obtained. This would be one way of trying to protect injured workers' privacy as well as possibly reducing unprofessional practices. 
Opportunities for public comment will be available when the administrator director begins the rulemaking process to establish a copy services fee schedule. And in medical news, a Santa Fe Springs-based healthcare management company has acquired Pacific Hospital of Long Beach. The move by College Health Enterprises to purchase Pacific Hospital comes as Pacific Hospital faces state and federal investigations into alleged fraudulent spinal surgeries for workers' compensation cases. Molina Healthcare will be involved in managing the community hospital, a first in its portfolio of businesses. Molina said he expects the hospital to expand with the rollout of Obamacare, which is designed to give medical services to low-income people. Financial terms of the acquisition by College Health, which was founded in 1986 and operates hospitals in Cerritos and Costa Mesa, were not disclosed. Molina Healthcare specializes in Medicaid-eligible families and individuals. The new Molina Healthcare unit is to be called American Family Care Hospital Management. The newly created business unit will retain more than 300 of Pacific Hospital's 700 workers. College Health is to run two of Pacific Hospital's psychiatric units. One is located at the main campus, with a smaller one located at Pacific's Avenue and Pacific Coast Highway. The State Compensation Insurance Fund filed a complaint in federal court last June claiming Pacific Hospital of Long Beach has been running scams for years to illegally boost payments for medical services provided to injured workers. Skiff wants to recoup some of the $160 million it has allegedly paid over the past dozen years under civil statutes used to prosecute organized crime syndicates. The fund filed the federal RICO suit against Pacific Hospital owners Michael Dubrow Sr., and his son, Michael DeBro Jr., the principals of HealthSmart Pacific and several companies they operate. The fund uncovered the alleged schemes after it launched an investigation into Pacific Hospital's bills. It had learned of reports that the Federal Bureau of Investigation had served search warrants at the hospital and an affiliated entity, Industrial Pharmacy Management. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkCom Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.